Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Okay, hold on. I'm just, I'm just enjoying Barack Obama's new book. I can't wait to find out what he's been up to. Stephen, I'm right here. No spoilers! It's a late show with Stephen Colbert. Tonight, part two of Stephen's interview with President Barack Obama. Featuring John Baptiste and Stay Holman. And now, live on tape from the Ed Sullivan Theater on this building in New York City. Welcome to A Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert, and tonight, folks, is a very special A Late Show. You may remember last week I sat down with my close personal friend, Barack, as he has asked me not to call him President Obama. Well, it turns out the president and I had so much to talk about, we actually couldn't fit it all into one show. We could have, but that would have meant more time with an American icon and fewer commercials for nasal decongestant, and obviously nobody wants that. So in the great tradition of this post-Thanksgiving season, tonight I'm going to serve you up some delicious leftovers in what we're calling... The Late Show's Chaka-Blaka-Barack-Obama-Rama Extravagama. As you know, the former president has been making the rounds recently to promote his new book, A Promised Land. It's the story of Barack Obama's first 27 months as president. And at almost 800 pages, it will take most people 27 months to finish. It's the first memoir meant to be read in real time. My favorite part about A Promised Land is that, just like most books, on the dust jacket back here, it has a little, uh, it has a little author bio. And it says, Barack Obama was the 44th president of the United States, elected in November 2008, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Who is that for, exactly? Who picks up this book without knowing who wrote it? Let's see, A Promised Land. Well, I am a fan of promises, and I'm a land mammal. Let's find out who this Barack Obama guy is. A promised land has been a long time coming. President Obama says it took him two and a half years longer than expected to finish. Not surprising if he dictated. The pauses would eat up a big chunk of that. The book's already a huge deal, selling a record-breaking 1.7 million copies in the first week. In fact, demand for a promised land in America is so high that the international publisher has printed 1.5 million copies in Germany to bring over on cargo ships. But I'm sure customers won't notice the difference between the American version and the German one. <laughs> and if you're happy to see Barack Obama back in the spotlight again, then you're not alone. Independent bookstores in particular are reporting unprecedented first day sales, which could prove crucial in recovering some of the losses suffered during the shutdown. How many times does this man need to save the economy? He propped up the auto industry now publishing, and next week he's bringing back America's shopping malls by getting his ears pierced at Claire's. Now, Obama's a Democrat, but in his early years, he did flirt with other political ideologies. And I do mean flirt. As he says in his book, a performative interest in the writings of political philosophers like 
Karl Marx and Franz Fanon gave him something to say to the long-legged socialist who lived in his dorm and the ethereal bisexual who wore mostly black. Oh, yeah. Nothing gets the ladies going like a little Marxism. Hey, baby, are you a religion? Because you're the opiate of my masses. Let's make like the proletariat and seize each other's means of production. Hmm? Obama also reveals who had the final say on one of his most iconic slogans. He was pitched a campaign ad where he looked into the camera and said, yes, we can. Obama says, I thought it was corny, but the director showed it to Michelle, who deemed it not corny at all. Thank goodness Michelle Obama told him not to play it so cool. Otherwise, we would have been stuck with posters that said hope or whatever. No big deal. Now that the book is on the shelves, Obama is not resting on his laurels. He and the former first lady have announced they'll be producing a Netflix sketch comedy series about the transition chaos from his administration to number 45. A Netflix show about taking over the White House from Obama. Please call it Orange is the New Black. But you've heard enough of me talking about Barack Obama. Let's change things up and watch me talking to Barack Obama. Jim? Thank you so much for coming down. I, you needed a change in venue. I got nothing, I got nothing else going on you know right what? now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you. Nice to see you, too. Yeah. Nice to see you, too. How have you been? You look well. Thank you very much. You look well, too. That's an exceptionally nice suit. Thank you very much. Do you not own a tie? Uh, I don't believe in ties anymore. Really? Funerals really? and weddings, the okay. only time you're going to see me in a tie. Now that you're no longer the President of the United States, do I still have to be dignified no. around you? You no? weren't dignified around me previously. <laughs> By my scale. <laughs> By my standards, I've been very dignified around you over the years. Evie insisted that I wear a suit today. I was against it because after eight months, my body is no longer suit-shaped. Listen, man, you look good in your suit. You Thank shaved. You. Thank you. Shoes are polished. Thank you very much. I think she just wanted to see you upgrade a little bit. I think so, too. I yeah. think so, too. By the way, I, I, I am enjoying Thank you. Uh, A Promised Land. Yes. You write in the book, and he writes this in the book, you write this in the book that one of the things you notice about becoming president is that no one ever calls you by your first name again. Yeah. And I haven't seen you uh, in the last four years, but I spent a lot of time with your wife. Yeah. Um, I actually traveled to London together and interviewed for right. her book in Nashville, and she right. gave me a cake on my birthday, and we danced on my birthday, she's been on the show a bunch of times, we actually did a pillow fort I, thing together. I understand, you guys are besties. a great besties. time. I understand. She actually got an email recently from one of her assistants saying that she is done with me calling her Madam First Lady, and that I am to call her Michelle, in no uncertain terms, and I have not seen her yet to actually do that. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm going to get the courage to do that when I see her next. Mr. President, is there anything you'd like to say to me? No. You know what, I, I take huh? that back. I'm sorry? You don't have to call me Mr. President. Uh, you can just call me President. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right. On behalf of a lot of Americans, I think I can say it with confidence that uh, we missed you. Thank you. These last four years. Did you miss you? Did you ever look at something going on in the news and go, you know what the situation needs? Little <laughs> Barack Obama. <laughs> I, I, I've said this before. I... I uh, People would ask me, knowing what you know now, do you wish like you had a, sec a, a third term? Um, and I, I used to say, you know what, if, if I could make an arrangement where um, 
I had a, I had a, a stand-in, a front man or front woman, and, and they had an earpiece in, and I was just in my basement in my sweats mm -hmm. looking through the stuff, and then I could sort of deliver the lines, but somebody else was uh, doing all the talking and ceremony. Wow. I, I'd be fine with that because I found the work fascinating. Um, I mean, I write about the, the, the uh, even in, in my, on my worst days, I found puzzling out, you know, these big, complicated, difficult issues, especially if you were working with some great people, to be uh, uh, professionally really satisfying. Um, but I, I do not miss uh, having to wear a tie every day. And uh, or there, are there things that you those. like? Are there are there aspects of the job? Because we found out from your successor that there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't actually have to do, and people still can see Who you knew? president. <laughs> do you look at it and go like, I didn't have to do any of that stuff. I know. I don't do this stuff. Are there I, any things that he chucked out? You went, oh, if only I had known I didn't have to do that. I think there's a lot. I thought respond to subpoenas. You know, follow follow uh, the constitution. Um, yeah, that's a drag. That constitution's a drag. You've said you've written this book for young people of the next generation. You're 59, I'm 56. What would you like us Gen Xers to know? Uh, get out of the way. Okay, boomer. <laughs> we, we, uh, I, I, I will say that um, I am so optimistic about uh, our kids and they're smarter than we were, they're more sophisticated, they're kinder. They're environmentally more conscious. They, they believed in stuff, as I write in the preface, that maybe we gave lip service to but didn't always want to live out because mm -hmm. it required some sacrifice. Or, uh, and, and you see them living out their commitments in really powerful ways. Um, but we have, to, we have to be willing to give them uh, the, the chance to remake institutions and change old habits. Um, so I'm... They make me optimistic. I just want to make sure that we don't screw things up so bad that by the time uh, they're in charge, that uh, you know, it, it uh, becomes that much harder. Um, by the way, have you I, have you listened to your own audiobook of this? I know you recorded it, but I did record it, so I was listening to it while sure. I was speaking. Sure, I've I've really enjoyed the audiobook. The uh -huh. fun fact is that you can listen to your audiobook at double speed. You can't tell that it's actually going faster. Your voice is a little higher, isn't it? Uh, no, your voice stays the same level, but just at normal speed, normal human talking speed. Okay, um, let's see, let me see. Uh -huh. What else you got? Hold that thought. We'll be right back with more of the 44th President of the United States, Barack Obama. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. 
Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with the author of A Promised Land, President Barack Obama. What do you think of the people who say that it would be good if the Republicans held control of the Senate because a divided government is a more stable government? And the no. Democrats won't go too, they'll go too far if they have control over everything. Look, I, I obviously experienced divided government. Sure. Um, and I will tell you that gridlock and dysfunction uh, is a recipe for not only not solving big problems, but also growing cynicism among the electorate that further polarizes the folks. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, why weren't you nicer to Mitch McConnell? Why, 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 why <laughs> weren't you nicer to him, let me Let me tell you, if, 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 of, of all the arguments that were made during my presidency, the notion that uh, my, my, my big problem was not schmoozing John, uh, Mitch McConnell enough, was, was one of the more frustrating arguments that I heard, but was entirely accepted. Uh, in, sure. Uh, it's, it's still conventional wisdom to this day in parts of Washington. Right. Um, I, you know, Mitch McConnell understood, and I write about this extensively, uh, that uh, if you throw sand in the gears and stuff doesn't work, the average voter doesn't really know why it's not working, they don't know who's in charge. They don't know the details of Senate procedure. What they do understand is the president's in charge, and we're still seeing the same arguments that we used to see. And so that's good for the opposition party. Did you ever ask for information that said we can't tell you? N no, but I will tell you that there were times where I asked for information and that it came slower than I wanted. <laughs> Did you ever, when you get in there, just say, like, get me the Declaration of yes. Independence, some lemon juice, and a blow dryer. We're going to Nicholas Cage this boy. <laughs> We're going to find that treasure map on the back. There are times where prying information out of uh, the bowels of an agency uh, can, can be challenging. UFOs? Any UFOs? Did you ask about that? I certainly asked about it. And? Can't tell you. Sorry. Okay. All right, I'll take that as a yes. Because if there were none, Why you'd not? say there was none, right? <laughs> you just played your hand. I thought you were a poker player. You just 100% showed your river card. Feel, feel free to think that. I do. I do. <laughs> That's so much. There, that makes it, me happy can, to think that you won't say, tell me about can UFOs. Can I say it used to be that UFOs was the, uh, and, and uh, what is it, Roswell was the biggest conspiracy? Yeah. And now that seems so tame. Right? Right. The idea that right. uh, the government might have an yeah. alien spaceship. That's now, the biggest, the <laughs> now the biggest conspiracy is people in Michigan vote. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. You're it's, a great president, and your people accused you of being a celebrity. There were days I didn't think about you. You did not think about me. Yeah. And, and I think Joe will, will, will get back to that. I think you can, uh, he, he will have some success in building back social trust because um, he is naturally someone who is empathetic and cares about people. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that we're going to have a larger challenge in figuring out what to do about this splintered media landscape. Um, and I've, I've said this before, but I, I can't emphasize this enough. When you and I were growing up, you know, you had Walter Cronkite, David Brinkley, you, you, right, John Chancellor. It wasn't scintillating television, 
but whether you are a conservative or a liberal, you got your news from the same place. So you had some common baseline of facts, and now you don't. And how you change that formula with the internet and 5,000 cable stations and uh, the death of small town newspapers and, and you know, uh, even local TV now being bought up by Sinclair so that they're now pumping out sort of a, a more uniform uh, uh, ideological line on everything. Uh, that makes things more difficult. And I think that uh, uh, we'll, Joe's presidency will help lower the temperature, mm -hmm. but the underlying challenge of us getting back to the point where we can at least agree that, let's say, Joe Biden got more votes. We'll right? see. You know, if that's, we can argue about why, whether he deserved to get more votes, et cetera, but he got more votes. But what do you say to this argument? Yeah. So you say Joe Biden got more votes. Yeah. How could he have gotten more votes if the president won? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Think about how your logic is eating you right now. He won, so the other guy getting more votes feels fishy, doesn't it? When you look at it that way, you gotta look at you gotta understand how other people are looking at it. Get outside your bubble, sir. Think about how somebody else is looking at it and don't stay get out of your get out of your mathematical echo chamber. He won, so why are there more votes on the other side? Something's wrong. Right. Thank you. Something's wrong. On behalf of so many Americans, I accept but, but, your but apology. Look, look, I was I was talking to I was talking to a friend of mine about this, and I was just trying to use a simple analogy that I think everybody understands. What, what's, uh, what's something we still have in common? And despite controversies around CTE, et cetera, people still watch football, right? Mm -hmm. So you imagine the Super Bowl, and you know the game's going on, and touchdowns are supposed to be worth six points with the extra point, unless you go for two, and field goals are worth three points, and you're keeping score the whole time, and the refs and so forth. And then at the end of the game, a team's won, and somebody says, no, field goals aren't worth three. Or that wasn't really a touchdown. Well, and Hugo Chavez we've kept all blocking <laughs> the field goal from the grave. We've all been watching. and. I guess if you had a, the other team just refused to acknowledge it and you had half the league say, we're not sure it's true, um, you'd have a similar controversy. But the whole point of the Super Bowl is that we agree upon a certain set of rules. That's why, it's, that's why we watch it, because this is all... Uh, been predetermined, this is how it works. And, and what we're seeing right now, I think, is um, a, a, a willingness to, to, to say, we don't care about the rules, even the ones we've agreed to. And when, when that starts happening, the game itself breaks down, right? The, the, and in, in this case, it's not a game, it's our democracy. Things our fall democracy apart. starts falling apart. I imagine if going forward, every single election is treated this way at every level. Imagine if Democrats start acting this way. Uh, 
Is that part of the danger that he's broken the seal on that idea? Th that is the concern that I think we all have. It, it's Joe Biden's going to be the next president. Kamala Harris is going to be the next vice president. But, but we don't want to get into a pattern where we just uh, are, are willing to throw out what we've agreed to previously, uh, including our constitutional structure, just because we find it politically expedient. A lot of presidents, once they leave office, they become friends or familiar with the other presidents. Yeah. Sort of they, they, they lay down their sword and shield a little bit. Right. You've played golf with President uh, George W. Bush and right. Bill Clinton. Do you have a tea time with uh, the present president yet? <laughs> I do not. You do not? No. Because you might want to have Jimmy Carter and the UN there to keep score, just to make well, sure. Listen, from what I understand, he's actually a, a, a pretty good golfer. Okay. Um, uh, I understand that, uh, uh, shockingly enough, there's sometimes problems with the scoring mm -hmm. and uh, whether he's keeping track of his That's Hugo Chavez again. <laughs> and that's his caddy. That's surprising. Um, I love the plans of the Obama Library down on the south side of Chicago. It's beautiful. Yeah. Looks like Starfleet headquarters just landed on the lakefront. <laughs> there. It's good. It looks fantastic. Um, uh, it'll have a museum, a library, a park, a gym where you can play basketball, bumper cars, water slide. What, okay. what, what else is going to be there? That, the bumper cars, no. No? You um, couldn't fund that? You couldn't find any? No. Okay. <laughs> Unless you want to contribute. The, Steve, the Stephen, Stephen Colbert, Colbert Memorial Bumper, Memorial bumper, bumper Cars. cars. Hey, listen, somebody price it, and I'll, I'll think about it. You know, uh, this, this could end up being um, not just, well, the, the goal is, is not to just have some mausoleum to me. Uh, is, it's rather to create a living, dynamic center around which young people can get inspired and even uh, try their hand at and learn about how their voices can bring about change. One of the details I like is that this is going to be the first presidential library that's all digital. There's yeah. no paper. Is that because after this book there is no paper left? That's it. Mm -hmm. Is this because is this why there I'm was a paper shortage in the spring? <laughs> Did all the toilet paper get rerouted and repulped into this thing? Yeah. It's a lot of pages. 748 pages. Yep, it's 701. The actual. Uh, stuff to to read. Index is in there. Yeah, and I noticed no, I'm not we, in it. Are you are you reading? You did the index? not fit 748 pages, and I don't even get mentioned no. in here. We did a bunch Volume of stuff two. together. Volume, Volume two. two. Volume two. Okay, good. Right. I want to point out something. A lot of similar stories between these two, yes. like a little crossover like this. Yeah. In her book, yes. meeting and your courtship, two-year engagement, 63 pages. Three pages. <laughs> Three. Three pages. Yeah, are, are, you, are you trying to get me in trouble? No, I, I'm not trying to get you in trouble. No, I'm just surprised your the, editor didn't stop you from getting in trouble. Num, num, number one, I'm not going to challenge her version of events. Okay. Right? So uh -huh. she's done it. Yes. That's how it happened. Yeah. Um, secondly, in my second book, I talk about meeting her already. So I've, I've, I've spread the story of our, our meeting over three books, and, and she just condensed it all into one. We have to take another break, sir, but stick around. We'll be right back with Michelle Obama's husband. Hey, everybody. We're here with President Barack Obama discussing his presidency and his new book, A Promised Land. You write about a trip to Egypt and seeing an ancient hieroglyphic, a, a painting right. or a drawing on the wall of one of the pharaonic tombs yeah. 
that one of your staffers says, boy, that really looks like you. And you, you, you saw it. And you imagined the life of that man in the etching. And you said, all of it was forgotten now. None of it mattered. The pharaoh, the slave, the vandal all turned to dust. Just as every speech I delivered, every law I passed and decision I made would soon be forgotten, just as I and all those I loved would someday turn to dust. Are you okay? <laughs> because if I saw it that, if like I saw that in the diary of a 13-year-old girl, I would go, we're going to get you some help. <laughs> like, this is, this is what, what, look, look. Uh, you know, uh, I should point out mm -hmm. that that is in the same chapter that then ends in Normandy. Yes. And, and I guess part of what that chapter is about is, you know, part of, part of how to maintain your, your, your equanimity, your, your steady state in this high pressure job, for me at least, was to take the long view and to remind yourself, look, there are gonna be ups and downs there are poll numbers, there's somebody is aggravating you, uh, you, you lost a vote on this or that or the other. And, and just reminding yourselves that in the sweep of history, this is not tragic, what's happening right now. There are bigger things that, uh, that matter. Um, but you have to keep that in mind, you know, the fact that it all turns to dust, with this other point of view, which is, within the time frame of human history that at least we can comprehend, actually what you're doing does matter. And you have to kind of maintain those two ideas at the same time. If, 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 you, if you understand the magnitude of what you're doing every single moment, then you're gonna be paralyzed. Um, so you, occasionally you have to pull back and just say, look, you know, uh, uh, you, you do your best and it'll be okay. But then you also have to say, man, this counts. You know, people's lives are saved. Uh, uh, somebody's going to get health care, some child's going to get education. You know, if, if you make this step instead of that step, maybe, uh, you know, this country doesn't descend into conflict and civil war. Um, you're going to make mistakes. There are going to be unintended consequences. You got to try anyway. When you became president, how quickly did you look back at Senator Barack Obama and go, that guy did not know what he was talking about? <laughs> That guy, you know, that there, guy needs a talking to. Yeah, look, there, there were a couple of there were a couple of times where you, uh, particularly around counterterrorism issues, where I think it is different when you're on the sidelines than when you are in the seat and you're seeing coming through the transom just mm -hmm. uh, uh, a series of uh, clear actionable intelligence indicating that some attack might be taking place. Mm -hmm. And your overriding concern about making sure that, that the country's safe, how you balance that concern with civil liberties issues, with uh, making sure that you are following the law. There are certain things that for me were clear, bright line rules, we don't torture, you know, we don't indefinitely hold people. But uh, there were other issues where as a senator, my attitude was, you know, very hard-nosed, 
uh, you know, we shouldn't be doing this, or we shouldn't be doing that. And then when you're in the middle of it, you're thinking, okay, but I, I really don't want this person to blow up a subway. Would you how, put do the, we, how do we uh, deal with that? Would you put the drone program into the thing that your Senator Barack Obama did not understand as well as President Barack Obama? Because that is something you got a lot of criticism and, over. And, and, and I, the, the drone program, which I, I'll, I deal with more in the, the second volume because uh, what I, I actually discovered was that the concerns were both legitimate but not always understood. The, the problem with the drone program was not that it caused uh, an inordinate amount of civilian casualties, although it, it, even one civilian casualty is tragic. Um, but it actually, the, the drones probably had less collateral damage, which is the antiseptic way of saying it killed people who were innocent and not just targets. Um, probably had fewer, uh, less collateral damage than if you send in troops, for example, and you're in a firefight, uh, or you're dropping ordnance using conventional pilots. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that it starts giving you the illusion that it is not war. The distance um, the, makes the it distance seem makes, sterile. Yes, and, and what I discovered, and, and I write about this in the second volume, um, the machinery of it started becoming too easy. And I had to actually impose internally a substantial set of reforms in the process to step back and remind everyone involved, this isn't target practice. There are, uh, each time we make this decision, we are engaged in the most profound act that uh, any government can take, which is, you know, uh, using lethal force against uh, against people and, and that there have to be better checks and balances in doing it. You had, you had a famously unleaky White House. Yes. No drama Obama and there are no leaks in this White House. I've spoken to members, uh, former staff members of yours who said that there were heated debates over yes. the use of the drones. Yeah. And I said, well, how come we didn't hear about this? Like, for 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 those out here who didn't understand this execute, this this, this uh, use of executive power, right. a little leak on those heated debates would have been helpful for us to understand the thinking that went into this. Yeah, that's part of what I mean about the imbalance where so much of foreign policy and military policy is now entirely housed in the executive branch. That the, that, that Congress generally is, uh, and, and this is true for both sides. You mean both sides of the political aisle? Both sides of the political aisle. There is a tendency among mem many members of Congress to say, we'll let the president make a foreign policy decision and then we'll see did it work or not and weigh in <laughs> right. we'll, based we'll on how We'll keep our powder dry, but not against the enemy, maybe yeah. against our political yeah. enemies. And, and some of this is inevitable. It's, it, it's one of the challenges of, of um, these terrorist networks is that they have, um, because they're not state actors, mm -hmm. you don't know, you don't have a clear victory. You don't have uh, MacArthur and Hirohito and uh, an armistice. Uh, and so uh, you have this entire apparatus of security that's grown up that is somewhat perpetual, 
And I think one of the big jobs I had was to try to, first of all, not make that the end all and be all of our foreign policy, to try to create legal structures around it. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that I was successful in a lot of respects, but there's some areas where, like closing Guantanamo, where uh, I couldn't get it done. Uh, I Were was, you surprised you couldn't get it done? Yes. That when you got in there, you went, oh, this isn't one move. There yes. are actually chess pieces involved yes. here. There are pressures at play here, right. deliberately established so that yes. it couldn't be, even though it could be created by fiat, it could not be undone by I, fiat? I, I was surprised at the, as commander in chief, I could not shut down a, a, a facility that was both unnecessary and, in my view, contrary to um, our legal traditions. Did you ever ask for information they said, we can't tell you? N no, but I will tell you that there were times where I asked for information and that it came slower than I wanted. <laughs> Did you ever, when you get in there, just say, like, get me the Declaration of yes. Independence, some lemon juice, and a blow dryer. We're going to Nicholas Cage this boy. <laughs> We're going to find that treasure map on the back. There are times where prying information out of uh, the bowels of an agency uh, can, can be challenging. UFOs? Any UFOs? Did you ask about that? I certainly asked about it. And? Can't tell you. Sorry. Okay. All right, I'll take that as a yes. Because if there were none, Why you'd not? say there was none, right? <laughs> you just played your hand. I thought you were a poker player. You just 100% showed your river card. Feel, feel free to think that. I do. I do. <laughs> That's so much. There, that makes it, me happy can, to think that I you won't say, tell me about can UFOs. Can I say it used to be that UFOs was the, uh, and, and uh, what is it, Roswell was the biggest conspiracy? Yeah. And now that seems so tame. Right? Right. The idea that right. uh, the government might have an yeah. alien spaceship. That's now, the biggest the <laughs> now the biggest conspiracy is people in Michigan vote. <laughs> Let's take another quick break. We'll be right back with more President Barack Obama. <laughs> Y'all seem strikingly normal. Like, if I still live in Chicago, because I, I lived in Chicago for 11 years, yeah. if I'd stayed there for a year, I'm sure we would run into you at some benefit. We'd hang out. You know, some, you yeah. know, we would have seen each other at something. You seem right. like people that we would know. Not everybody in Washington, D.C. seems that way after being here for 40 years. Right. They're lovely people, but right. they just, they, they don't seem like just folks. Right. What, what did you think you got from, and you touched on this a little bit in the book, of being a community organizer to a state senator to a senator to the president of the United States to out? That allowed, that, that allowed you to maintain, and this seems more pejorative to those who don't do it so quickly, but a little bit of your humanity or your commonality of the American experience. You know, I, I, I think uh, part of it was my political success happened late. You know, if you think about, let's say, Bill Clinton, you know, he was, I think, the youngest governor ever in Arkansas. Joe Biden was a U.S. senator at 29, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, at, at 40, I had just lost a congressional race. Mm -hmm. I uh, maxed out on my credit cards. You know, I'm going to the grocery store with Malia and Sasha in tow. Uh, actually, Malia, because Sasha was born a, a, a year later. Um, and, and so... We had lived 
um, a normal middle class life with student loans and washing your own car and uh, you know uh, waiting for luggage at the airport, uh, you know, coming back from you know a, a vacation and and so. Uh, we then get kind of shot out of a cannon, but you're formed by that point. You know, you real as I used to describe uh, to folks right after I, I gave that speech at the Democratic National Convention. Um, I wasn't smarter the day after that speech than I had been the day before. Uh, my first book. Uh, was no different. The one that sold 14,000 copies and then sold 3 million copies after that speech, right? It's just suddenly you're getting all this attention. And, and so I think for Michelle and for me, we both took the, the, uh, the outsized fame with a grain of salt. Um, and then as I write about in the book, it also helped to have my mother-in-law around, who is the least pretentious person I know. I have met her. Yeah, and she's just her. she's down to earth, and she doesn't understand all the fuss, and um, you know, and she was great to have around. Also, with the girls, I write about the fact that probably maybe one of my greatest successes and Michelle's greatest success uh, in those eight years was raising these great girls who don't have an attitude and don't feel entitled. But part of it is because my mother-in-law, you know, if she saw him acting bratty or He's all, you guys haven't done anything. Why are you acting special? <laughs> You're just here for the ride, you know? And, and, and they'd suddenly go, You're right, Grandma. So, uh, so she, was a, she was a huge blessing. Um, in that speech in 2004 at the Democratic National Convention, I was yeah. in Boston watching it from across the street. And we were struck, I was watching it with me and, and John Stewart and some of the other producers were watching you give the speech. And we're like, who's this Barack Obama guy? First of all, like everybody else, right. who's this Barack Obama guy? And then when I believe that's the speech where you threw in, I am the grandson of a goat herder. <laughs> we went, boom, that is the humble beginnings neutron bomb. That, that's pretty good. Did you know, let's put this in here and I'll blow all the like son of a milkman off, off the goat, street. Goat herder, goat herder is hard to top. It really is. Yeah, you gotta go back to log cabin days to beat the, the goat herder. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Mm -hmm. true story, what can I tell you? All right, we have to pay the bills again. Everybody stick around, we'll be right back with more President Barack Obama. Hey everybody, welcome back. I can't believe I get to talk to President Barack Obama. Barack Obama, after eight years of president and numerous interviews, I'm sure you've been asked every question in the world. We'd like to do a segment right now we're calling Questions We're Pretty Sure Barack Obama Has Never Been Asked Before. Dairy Queen Blizzard or Frosties from Wendy's? Frosties from Wendy's. Best Monopoly playing piece? Uh, the car. This is right. What did I say before? It's the car. It doesn't tip over. You know, it's, it's got good stability. And it's a car. It's a car. What goes in a toaster? Toast. Bread goes in a toaster. Toast comes out. That was a trick question. How does Dolly Parton not have a Presidential Medal of Freedom? That's a mistake. Yes. I'm shocked. 
I had, Looking back on your eight years, do you realize that's that, the mistake that, you made? That, actually, that was a screw-up. I'm surprised. I, I think I, had, I assumed that she had already got one, mm -hmm. and that was incorrect. I assume I'm surprised too. she deserves one. I'll, I'll call Biden. Do it. By the way, we're a couple of days before Thanksgiving. CDC is urging um, families to just do Zoom Thanksgivings right now. Don't have your friends over. So um, I know you can't invite me because it just wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be safe. It wouldn't right. be the responsible thing to do. So you know I can't come, and I'm not going to come. But just for niceties, would you, would you like to invite me? Because you know I, I can't I come. Invite your wife, I like. What? I, w I wouldn't invite you. You would not. You would invite. You would invite also, my wife. I think that Honey. I also think that she will be observing all the protocols mm -hmm. better than you. Can I be her plus one? We'll think about it. Okay, President Obama, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you about part one of your memoirs. Thank you um, so much. Thank you for sitting down for part one of our interview. It's been fantastic. <laughs> yeah. This has been The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. We'll be dropping classic bits and celebrity interviews seven days a week while the show goes on hiatus for summer break. The Late Show will be back on July 18th with all new episodes. If you're enjoying The Late Show Poncho, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Watch The Late Show with Stephen Colbert weeknights at 11.35, 10.35 Central on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. For more exclusive Late Show content, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.